During the 19th century, Mars was more and more regarded as the planet most likely to harbor life. Especially when astronomers thought they saw specks of light appear on the surface of the red planet. Many people believed that these were attempts to signal the Earth, and immediately plans were laid to build a gigantic mirror to return the friendly greetings. Later, Kurt Laswitz thrilled the world with his story about a crew of Earthmen who are captured by a magnetic Martian spaceship. The Earthmen are taken to Mars, where they are wined and dined on synthetic food. In a story by Robert Brain called Messages from Mars, a sailor is marooned on a lonely island off Madagascar. He discovers a rare and powerful telescope planet, which he immediately focuses on Mars. The Martians he sees are exactly ten feet tall. Their favorite culture is music, which they inhale in great quantities through their noses. As the 20th century dawned, H.G. Wells excited countless imaginations with his approach to life on Mars. In his War of the Worlds, he describes an invasion of the Earth by octopus-like creatures who are encased in giant fighting machines. With their heat rays and poisonous gases, they are quite invincible until they encounter the common germs in our atmosphere. <laughs> Wells followed his science fiction story with a more serious discussion. He reasoned that plants would grow taller and thinner in the weaker gravity of Mars, and insects would probably be larger than those on Earth. The Martian animals, covered with fur or feathers during winter, would lose their covering with the coming of summer. The people of Mars would probably walk on their hind legs, their barrel-chested bodies covered with a coating of down. Their ample skulls would be crammed with intelligence. And their trunk-like noses indispensable for feats of engineering. This is Zach Ruskin, and welcome to Radio Book Passage. On each episode of this podcast, we'll focus in-depth on a specific author. There will be interviews, audio clips from their events, and more than a few surprises along the way. For those of you wondering what exactly Book Passage is, we're a pair of bookstores in the San Francisco Bay Area. Our Corte Madera store in Marin County was established 40 years ago, and in recent years we've added another store in San Francisco's iconic Ferry Building Plaza. We also offer writing conferences for picture book writers and illustrators, middle grade authors, mystery writers, and travel writers and photographers. In our Corte Madera store, we host daily classes in subjects ranging from French to memoir writing. In short, no two days are ever alike, and that's just the way we want it. Since we first opened our doors, Book Passages welcomed presidents, Nobel laureates, Michelin-rated chefs, Oscar-winning actors, and everyone in between. Radio Book Passage is a chance to share a little bit of what life is like for the Bay Area's liveliest bookstore. And for our first episode, we're traveling out of this world.
Right. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist. Mars will come to fear my botany powers. Andy Weir is the author of The Martian, the best-selling novel about Mark Watney, a man stranded on Mars when his crewmates leave him for dead. It was the source material for the recent film starring Matt Damon that was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. While the idea of being stranded alone on Mars may sound like the premise for a horror movie, what makes Weir's novel so unique and incredible is his ability to weave hard science and sharp humor into the narrative. Watney is a modern-day MacGyver, and Weir's tireless efforts to get all the numbers right make it that much easier to sink into the riveting story of his struggles to escape the Red Planet and return home. Book Passage recently hosted Weir as part of the opening celebrations for One Book, One Marin, a community program in which the entire county reads a book together, with special events occurring throughout the spring leading to a culminating event in April. Before Weir took the stage, we spoke about the journey the Martian has taken and what comes next. Tom, speaking to you with the Oscars looming at the end of the month, uh, what does it feel like to know a film based on your novel may be recognized as the best picture of the year? Well, it feels pretty cool. Um, although I didn't have much to do with the movie, my main job on the film was to cash the check. And I, I feel like I did a pretty good job of that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's great for uh, for Drew and uh, Simon and uh, the, all, all the people who were uh, directly nominated. I'm, I'm really rooting for them. I'd be really surprised if it got best picture, though. I mean, like, uh, uh, sci-fi never wins best picture. But it's really cool to be nominated. And, uh, you know, among the six Academy Awards, you have Drew. Seven. Not, uh, what's the seventh one? There's, uh, let's see, Best Picture, uh, so it's Best Picture, Best Actor, um, uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, um, uh, Best Visual Effects. And there's sound. There's two sound ones, and Best Production Design, or Best, awesome. best Production. So yeah. among the seven, seven, yes. You know, I I know that it's Drew who wrote the screenplay, but is it you know especially satisfying to see that piece of the project get nominated and and oh what, yeah, what role did you did you have if any? Was he consulting with you as you he was writing it? Yeah, he uh, he asked my opinion on things. I mean, he didn't have to take it. I had no creative control whatsoever, but he chose to involve me, which was really cool. And um, yeah, he he call, he was calling me pretty much every day while he was writing the screenplay. So yeah, it's really cool. I feel like I was a part of it, a, a, a very small part of it. It's not like we were you know equals working on this or anything. It was all Drew's screenplay. But uh, yeah, I feel pretty good about it. Absolutely. Uh, in a, one of several Reddit AMAs that you've done, mm -hmm. uh, I think someone asked you a question that was essentially, if you 
had a time machine and could go back and change one thing about the Martian, what would you do? And you said it would be to make the initial disaster an engine test failure instead of the uh, sandstorm for reasons of accuracy. Uh, was that something you ever considered proposing that Drew or Ridley Scott like change for the film part of it? Or was it just better to leave it as it is in the book instead of tinkering? Well, what's funny is I actually did suggest it to them. So um, because Ridley came back and said, hey, this, uh, this sandstorm isn't working out. The math on it isn't working out. So Ridley correctly identified that it was like scientifically inaccurate. And I said, like, yeah, I knew that at the time. I did come up with an alternate idea, though, that instead of a sandstorm, it's an MAV engine test that goes wrong and causes all the problems. And I could write up a sequence of events for you, and Drew could put it in the screenplay if you want. Um, or Drew could just do it directly. I mean, I wasn't trying to insinuate myself. But, uh, but they, they both, Drew and Wrigley both said, no, we've already got the special effects people working on the sandstorm, and it looks awesome. So <laughs> <laughs> there is sort of the rule of awesome when it comes to movies. If something looks great, then... Suffice to say, <clears throat> it was pretty awesome to see on screen. So it I was. Can, it was I really cool. I can concede their point on that for sure. It was a really good sandstorm. Uh, I actually had a chance to speak with uh, John B. Charles. Do you know who that is? No. He's that? the associate manager for international science at NASA's human research program. Okay. And uh, I spoke with him last year sort of getting NASA's take on The Martian. Uh, and he called it the best space movie I have seen in a long time. Uh, so I, I kind of feel like I'm going to know the answer to this, but <laughs> what's a bigger deal, having your novel be an Oscar-nominated film or hearing people from NASA think that it's awesome? Uh, the latter, yeah. yeah. I, I'm way more excited about the kind of the NASA guys liking it. Of course, because those are the guys who can, who can identify every inaccuracy in the story. And there are some. I mean, it's not, it's not perfectly clean. Um, and uh, those guys still like it. So, yeah, that feels good. <laughs> and uh, I assume you've had a chance to meet some people from NASA. Oh, yeah, lots of them. Yeah. Go see some cool stuff. Is there any, like, specific highlights of those? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, they brought me out uh, for uh, four days of VIP tours. They brought me to Johnson Space Center, and I got to see all sorts of really cool stuff. And my fa I mean, just all sorts of labs, everything. Space suits, uh, external and internal design concepts, uh, just I mean, the neutral buoyancy lab, all sorts of stuff. Um, rovers also. But my favorite has got to be uh, Mission Control. They brought me to Mission Control, and I got to look at that. And I was just very excited by that, really jazzed. And uh, they let me go into Mission Control, not just the observation booth area, but actually into the MCC itself. And they let me sit at the Cronus station, uh, which is the, the flight controller that handles communication and uplinks and downlinks, data and voice and stuff like that, manages the radio connection to uh, the station, in the International Space Station, and they let me remote control a camera mounted to the outside of ISS. <laughs> it doesn't get much better than it's that. It's pretty awesome, <laughs> and they put, the, they put the, the camera feed on the big screen up front, and so I'm just like, zzz, zzz, six second delay <laughs> from when my commit, because it has to get through a bunch of relay stations on Earth and then be broadcast to the station. That seems like something that you can totally understand when you hear it, but I bet it's weird and when you actually see it and push something and then Give six, it six seconds later, and then yeah. see it move. Uh huh. It was really cool, though. <laughs> I, I can only imagine. I'm really freaking awesome. Slightly jealous, but uh, you should be. You should be. <laughs> As well, you should be, sir. Hearing Weir speak about The Martian, it can be hard to remember that before it was a best-selling book and blockbuster film, 
It was a passion project that took a while to catch the interest of publishers. At his event to launch the 2016 One Book, One Marin Celebration of the Martian, Weir spoke about the journey his book took to go from his website to shelves across the world, and eventually the big screen as well. Crown is a subdivision of Random House. Um, an editor there named Julian Pibio was talking to um, a friend of his, and his friend recommended, hey, you should read this e-reader book, The Martian. And he's like, eh, I don't know. Uh, it seems kind of like engineering porn. I'm not sure if this is like a real book <laughs> or what. And so um, he was talking about it to a colleague of his, a literary agent named David Fugate. And he's like, eh, I don't know if I want to read this. Some people say it's good. It seems to be selling well. I'm not sure. And David said, like, well, I'll read it if you don't want to. Um, and Julian said, sure, I don't care. And so David read it, and he's like, hmm, I like this. And so he came and contacted me and said, hey, do you need a literary agent? So earlier in life, I spent three years desperately trying to get a literary agent, and then one of them just emails me and says, hey, you want one? Like, okay. So I looked, him up, I looked him up online to make sure he's a real person and stuff, and um, mostly what I found were people talking about, yeah, I, I tried to get him as my agent, but he, he turned me down. So I'm like, well, that's also a good signer. Right? And so I'm like, sure, you can be my agent. And David's like, great. Julian, how much are you going to pay us for this book? Which I thought was delightfully predatory. Um, so anyway, they started working out a, a deal for uh, an arrangement for the book deal. And uh, that's a negotiation process between my agent and Random House, and it takes weeks and stuff. While that was going on, we were approached, approached by 20th Century Fox, who wanted the film rights. So this for, uh, th there's not even a book yet, right? <laughs> and so they're like, oh, we want, uh, we want the film rights. And I'm like, uh, uh, I talked to my agent. <laughs> and so um, my agent uh, uh, farmed that off to a colleague of his who does exclusively film rights contracts. And uh, that guy's named John Kassir. And so... John, my film agent, was talking to Fox and negotiating the film contract while my literary agent was talking to Random House negotiating the book contract. All this stuff was going on at the same time. By the way, I'm still a programmer at this point. So I'm sitting in my, bug, sitting in my cubicle, fixing bugs, running off to take a phone call about my film deal, then back. <laughs> it was sort of a surreal time. And then, um, then eventually the two deals both came together four days apart. Wow. So the book deal and the movie deal were four days apart. Wow. Which was first? Uh, the movie deal was first. Wow. <laughs> Weird, huh? flows so well because you put these frequent problems in front of Mark Watney and uh, you know he has to solve them in his continued efforts to survive long enough to be rescued. Uh, of all the solutions you were able to create to keep Watney alive, was there one that you were most proud of or one that it took the longest for you to get the solution that you needed in the plot? Um, yeah, the, uh, the orbital trajectories that, they, that Hermes took to get to and from Mars, all of those are real. I calculated them all. <laughs> I had to write special software to, to work them out. And um, yeah, that, that was a lot more work than was necessary because it's not like people are gonna double check my orbital trajectories. I mean, they did, <laughs> but only because I told them that they were accurate. And by the way, a, a group of astrodynamicists double checked 
my claims on the orbital trajectories and they found out I was right to within about 2%. So I feel real good about that. Yeah, you absolutely should. <laughs> um, I remember when you and I uh, had lunch back when uh, the Martian, as far as the crown release of it, was still an arc, uh, and you had said something to the effect of, you know, you can figure out exactly what day mm -hmm. everything is, and you had alluded that, you know, maybe you'd have some kind of contest to see if someone could figure it out. Yep. Did you ever go through with that? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the thing is, because I'd calculated the orbital trajectories, that meant that I had had to ultimately know exactly what date everything took place on. Right. Because of the positions of Earth and Mars. And so um, I, I mentioned that in a few whatever in a few interviews and stuff maybe someday i'll have a contest well a guy named kenny ray who works for um jpl like was able to back calculate the correct dates based on information in the uh, book basically he was able to calculate it from the communication latency between earth at Mar earth and mars on various days plus the knowledge that um sol 16 was thanksgiving day there you go. Yeah. So, so you do. You have a few hints in there that help. There are a few hints, yeah. And he worked it out. He got it the exact date, the, the launch date. And was his prize a feeling of satisfaction? <laughs> um, yeah, well, I sent him, I, I sent him a free uh, signed copy of the hardcover. Seemed reasonable. I think that's a good score. <laughs> uh, so what's fun is, you know, since The Martian has taken off, become this bestseller, had the film adaption, you get to sort of be a part of all these conversations where people are asking your take on what it'll actually take for us to get to Mars, what's realistic, what programs you think maybe are problematic. Uh, I'm curious, how do you see companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, are they a pivotal step in the eventual course of getting people to Mars? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, in fact, they're even more important than that. They are a pivotal step in making a commercial space industry um, comparable to the commercial airline industry, a self-sustaining industry that, that is like profit-driven. Once that happens, there'll be competition among launch companies to drive the prices down and down and down. Uh, someday we'll get to the point where uh, an, a middle-class Westerner, American or European, you know, middle-class person can... Um, afford a trip to space like if it cost something like ten thousand bucks to go to space people would do it companies would know that people would do it so those companies would build space hotels and cool stuff from the do up there and um meanwhile the launch companies would all go into competition with each other and they'd have lots and lots of revenue from people going to space and that would drive the price down and down and down as they develop new and better technologies so we're at the cusp of a space boom, and uh, companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin are, are critical in that. Now, I want to draw a huge distinction between SpaceX and Blue Origin. SpaceX puts things into orbit. <laughs> Blue Origin puts stuff into space, but not into orbit. At the moment, they're focusing on basically a long parabolic flight, and that's exciting. You could get, uh, with, their, with their ship, you could get like four minutes of weightlessness, which is pretty cool. It's much better than the 30 seconds you get um, on the parabolas with the zero-g vomit comet. Right. Um, and so four minutes of weightlessness is useful both, first off, and for a lot of people it would be fun as hell, and second off, uh, for science uh, purposes, four solid minutes of zero-g is much better for testing things than 30 seconds at a time. And so Blue Origin has a slightly different goal and market than uh, SpaceX. Yeah. 
going back to to when I was lucky enough to get an early copy of your book, uh, I want to credit your publishers because when they sent it, they uh, included a shrink-wrapped potato yeah. that said, break in case of emergency. Actually, I think it said uh, Mars Survival Kit. Mars Survival Kit? Okay, yeah. even better. Uh, so a shrink-wrapped potato that said Mars Survival Kit, which is undoubtedly one of the cleverest bits of marketing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. um, did you have any hand in that? And if you didn't, what was your reaction when you heard that bookstores were getting sent potatoes with your, I, with your book? I did not have a hand in that. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, the folks at Crown did that. They also made a uh, recipe card for water. <laughs> it was just, um, you know, they had me write the text for it, but it was their idea. And they said, like, uh, you know, I, I think I wrote text like, water, uh, just simply a must for any, uh, you know, thing. It, it serves well with any number of dishes, and um, it's it's great for anybody who doesn't want to die a horrible death of thirst. And it's like, the ingredients are like, you know, one part all natural organic oxygen. You know? <laughs> Two parts, you know, <laughs> you know, farm-fed, whatever, free-range hydrogen. You know, resist the urge to use a substitute for hydrogen because then you might end up with things like rust or glass. <laughs> and so I just went through this whole snarky thing, like, you know, you know, flambe at such and such a degrees. Note, this will probably kill you. Yeah. <laughs> and so on. That was fun. Uh, well, to our listeners, I promise I am not a show for a crown, but mm -hmm. I... I do want to know, what's it like to, to see, you know, get your book picked up and see the support from a publisher in, in creative ways like that when it was first going on? Did you have any kind of inkling with the fact that, that they were doing these kind of things, which I would say is not necessarily normal for a debut author's right. major release? It, uh, was, it was my first rodeo, so yeah. I, don't, I didn't have anything to compare it to. I was like, okay, I guess this is just how the marketing effort goes. But like my agent was like, this is not normal. Usually I can't get a publisher to do anything to market a book. And, and you know, he's like, you got to understand, this is weird. You know, so they really they really went all in on it. And it paid off because the book sold well. It's still selling well. It's been on the bestseller list for over a year. It's doing, everybody's making lots of money. So yeah. everybody's happy. <laughs> uh, and I've... I've read you, you mentioned what you might be working on next, but uh, I'm curious to know, does it, you had said 2016 at some point, are you still planning to release your next title this year or? No, we're probably shooting more for 2017 now. I had written a large chunk of a, of a book called, tentatively titled Jeck, mm -hmm. and I'd written like 75,000 words on it, but it just wasn't feeling right. It was not that good. It wasn't that entertaining. I wasn't I don't know. It's hard to describe. I, I just wasn't, it didn't feel like I was, I, I felt like I was going down a bad path. Among other things, it's like now that I've kind of established myself as a, as a hard sci-fi writer who gets accurate science and everything, um, going straight to the soft sci-fi concept seemed really wrong. So I went uh, back to my roots and now I'm working on a story that it takes place in a city on the moon. And uh, so I'm plugging away on that and I have been for a little while. And uh, hope to have that out in early 2017. And is that, uh, you know, obviously say only what you feel comfortable <laughs> saying, but is that set in our world? Is that in yeah, the I same mean, way the in, Martian is? Yes. It's, yeah. it's, uh, near, uh, it's a little further a future than the Martian is because it's a city on the moon. Sure. But it's, um, but it's uh, yeah, it's all realistic uh, science. There's no hand-waviness, um, no aliens, nothing like that. 
And uh, you've been quoted as saying when you were first writing The Martian that I think people sometimes imagine you must have just had a bajillion emails out to like every NASA engineer to sort of get all your info, but you actually did it yourself. Yeah, just uh, Google's a wonderful thing. It is. Is that Thanks. the same tactic you're employing for this one? Even Absolutely. though you probably have a sweet Rolodex now? I do have a sweet <laughs> Rolodex, and actually I'm using them for a different project. But I'll get to that in a second. Um, but the uh, the, um, uh, the the book that I'm working on now, yeah, it's just um, I I already know the scientific principles I need to know to work that stuff out. I spent a lot of time researching it. I'd actually pitched this book idea to them first, and then went with Jack, and then went back to this book idea uh, because I had a great setting but a crappy plot when I first pitched it, and now I have you know yeah good. Good plot, hopefully. <laughs> we all look forward to, to reading it, I assure you. <laughs> yes, I look forward to lots of reviews. Uh, I'll consider it a win if people say, like, it's not as good as a Martian, but, you know, it's good. <laughs> it is a tough act to follow. It when is your a tough first, act to follow, yeah. Your first book does it's that gonna well. It's going to be a step down. Doubt, doubt, <laughs> doubt they're going to have Ridley Scott and Matt Damon make a movie out of the second one, especially because the lead character is a uh, Middle Eastern woman. I don't think Matt Damon would really suit that role. And maybe but he wants he to stretch. he's a very dynamic actor, so, you know. Maybe he and Affleck can tag team it. You never know. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, so is there anything you, you can say about your project that is uh, incorporating said awesome Rolodex? Um, I really haven't. Uh, I, really, I really have not uh, used any of my NASA contacts or any of the people I know for that. Because, like I said, this stuff is already known. Well, there was one person I talked to, and I asked specifically, like, uh, I remember I said, like, okay, they, they want to manufacture steel on the moon, let's say. Uh, they can get iron. There's lots of iron on the moon in the in this stuff. And I'm like, they need to import chromium from Earth. But uh, what about, and carbon, but what about nickel? And I realized, hmm. And I, and I had this plot idea, and I ran it by uh, um, an asteroid expert. It was a woman who had a PhD in, like, studying asteroids and, and stuff like that. And I said, like, oh, okay, here's my idea. I wanted, I wanted my characters, you know, on the moon to go, like, oh, we'll go get near-Earth asteroids. And, you know, we'll, we'll find a near-Earth asteroid that's, like, 95% nickel. A lot of asteroids are made, have a huge nickel concentration. And it's even elemental nickel, so it's already, like, smelted and ready to go. And then we'll redirect it so that it hits the moon, and then they can just go collect it on the surface. I'm like, that's cool. And she's like, yeah. Or you could just look in the middle of craters on the moon, because each of those craters was caused by an impact, and in the middle, the remnants of the meteorite that hit it. So why don't you just look there? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> big, big old asteroids all made of nickel, like smacking the shit out of the moon for the last four billion years. I'm like, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe that's a good spot to look. <laughs> Yeah, I get asked this question a lot, and um, so two things. Within the context of the story, um, they were uh, they were extending and attempting to save Mark's life. They had already committed to the Ares program hundreds of billions of dollars to put astronauts on Mars for a month at a time. Now, 
by spending a few hundred million more dollars, they get an astronaut on Mars for like 500 and some odd days. So it's actually much more efficient <coughs> in terms of like, you know, dollars per day on Mars than the original program. So, so it actually works out just fine for them. Um, another, but talking just more esoterically about human nature, yes, I do believe that people do that. I do believe that we are like that. And I don't need to speculate on it. The history is just absolutely littered with examples of it, everything from Apollo 13 to even much more recently the Chilean miners. There were 30 people trapped under there, and they spent tens of millions of dollars to dig them out. So, yes, I, I, that's a pretty awesome aspect of humanity. I'm doing a TV show pitch. I'm, I'm pitching a TV show that'll be um, deeply entrenched in like modern day space science. Very cool. And uh, so I'm using my NASA contacts for the details on that. As one would expect, yeah. Because that one, unlike uh, the moon one, this one is takes place much much closer to modern day. And so I'm, I can say for the moon one, I can be like, well, you know, it's been, you know, I'm shooting for like 2080s, 2090s is when the moon one takes place. And I'm like, well, you know, I can say this was invented, that was invented, just minor, minor leaps in technology that aren't unreasonable. But for something that takes place almost modern day, I've got to use like real technology that we have now. So for the uh, the people in the 2080s, 2090s, will they be treated to some newer music than disco? Yeah, or will that yeah. still be there? The music, uh, the music won't be an issue in this particular story. <laughs> I'm relieved for them. <laughs> uh, so working in the bookstore industry, one of our most frequently asked questions is, I just finished X book, what should I read next? Mm -hmm. uh, so for people that have just finished and loved The Martian, uh, what are some things you recommend that they pick up? Either obvious or maybe ones that they wouldn't think to go to. Well, I've got a couple of recommendations depending on what they're after, what they liked about The Martian. Great. If they liked like the real science behind Mars missions and behind um, space travel and stuff like that, I'd recommend a nonfiction book called Packing for Mars by Mary Roach. Love Mary. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, and I don't know, no, I just, I really, it's probably, it's the best nonfiction space book I've ever read. I, I am it. proud to say that I gave Mary your book when she hadn't heard of it. Oh, excellent. I've never spoken to her or met her, so that's cool. She was, she was super excited. I was like, yeah. you've read this, right? And she's like, no, I haven't. I was <laughs> like, take it. <laughs> well, great. Take it. <laughs> great. Um, so that, and then, uh, if you, if they just like, uh, snarky main characters and kind of funny science fiction, not silly zany, like Hitchhiker's Guide style, but just, you know, humorous narration, stuff like that. I'd, and just an engrossing story. I recommend Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. Klein. That's probably the best sci-fi book I've read in the last 10 years. And then, but if they want a good kind of adventure on Mars kind of story, I'd recommend Mars. It's just called Mars by Ben Bova. Bambova, got yeah, it. Yeah, you're thinking of Kim Stanley Robinson. I was, I was, that's, that's RGB. Red, yeah. That's red, yeah. Well, there's red Mars, green Mars, blue Mars. RGB, yeah, yeah, got but, it. Um, but, yeah, um, those are good. They didn't really ensnare me as much as they, you know, as much as they got it. They're, those are good books. Those are, like, you know, the canonical Mars books up there with, like, the Martian Chronicles and stuff like that. Sure, yeah, yeah. But Ben Bova's Mars I like because it was another kind of hard science fiction. It all The science in it is is pretty solid. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a nice little, like, first manned mission to Mars kind of adventure. Yeah. Uh, 
So you're about to launch the uh, the one book one Marin for the Martian, okay. and uh, yeah. as I said earlier, later this month will be the Academy Awards. Do you think that that these two things are sort of maybe like the end of the long cycle that has been this awesome chapter of? Yeah, the Martian I, in your life? Yeah, I think so. I mean, once the Academy Awards are done, then that's kind of the end of the yeah the the, the excitement. There's no plans for a sequel, nothing like that. Um, it did it did serve as a launching off point for me to kind of weasel my way into Hollywood. So I'm trying to break in with a TV show, going to try to write a, a film screenplay, stuff like that. But my real my bread and butter comes from writing novels, so that's why my top priority is the is my new book. Well, your readers want it to remain your top priority, too, because we're psyched <laughs> for it. I guess there's no reason for me to keep it, the title a secret. It's The working title is Artemis, like the Greek goddess. Fantastic. That's the name of the city. Oh, that's the name of the city on the moon. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, it's Apollo's twin sister. There you go. There we go. Well, great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for being a part of this. Thanks and congratulations on all the success. Thank you. And we we're happy to be able to have you here. Happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Radio Book Passage. This program is produced by Elaine Petricelli, Bill Petricelli, and Zach Ruskin. Additional support from Sam Barry. Our thanks to Andy Weir and One Book, One Marin. To purchase The Martian, visit bookpassage.com. To learn more about One Book, One Marin, visit onebookonemarin.org. Join us next time when we speak with Christopher Jansma, author of The Unchangeable Spots of Leopards and Why We Came to the City. And as the great Neil Gaiman once said, a book is a dream that you hold in your hand. <laughs>